This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So today we'll see how two great writers, separated by about 1900 years, uh, reported on the great disaster of their day, or the great disaster of their day that they happened to witness themselves. Uh, first will be the account of the eruption of uh, Mount Vesuvius uh, and the silencing of the town of Pompeii, written in a letter by the then 18-year-old Pliny the Younger to the historian Cornelius Tacitus, and, and that happened in the year AD 79. And following that will be Jack London and his report on the great earthquake of San Francisco in 1906. And just to see how it is that these two people separated by such a great amount of time, uh, how they go about describing what it is that they saw. Uh, Pliny the Younger writing in a letter and uh, Jack London writing for Collier's magazine. And uh, just to give another shout out to Lapham's Quarterly, um, I don't know of another place where I would have found both of these together. Uh, except in Lapham's Quarterly, and this comes from their issue from the summer of 2008. Uh, in the issue uh, around the theme of the Book of Nature. So, to get to Pliny the Younger, who, um, as many of you may know, uh, he grew up and published his letters, uh, a lifetime of letters, for uh, for posterity, we can still find them and read them now. And this is his account of uh, Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius. To Cornelius Tacitus, thank you for asking me to send you a description of my uncle's death so that you can leave an accurate account of it for posterity. I know that immortal fame awaits him if his death is recorded by you, um, and his uncle being Pliny the Elder, the great historian and uh, encyclopedist of, uh, one of the great encyclopedists of, of Rome. He was stationed at Misenum in active command of the fleet on, October on August 24th, in the early afternoon, my mother drew his attention to a cloud of unusual size and appearance. He had been out in the sun, had taken a cold bath, 
and lunched while lying down, and was then working at his books. He called for his shoes and climbed up to a place which would give him the best view of the phenomenon. It was not clear at that distance from which mountain the cloud was rising. It was afterwards known to be Vesuvius. Its general appearance can best be expressed as being like an umbrella pine, for it rose to a great height on a sort of trunk, and then split off into branches, I imagine, because it was thrust upward by the first blast, and then left unsupported as the pressure subsided, or else it was borne down by its own weight, so that it spread out and gradually dispersed. Sometimes it looked white, sometimes blotched and dirty, according to the account of soil and ashes it carried with it. My uncle's scholarly acumen saw at once that it was important enough for a closer inspection, and he ordered a boat to be made ready, telling me I could come with him if I wished. I replied that I preferred to go on with my studies, and as it happened he had himself given me some writing to do. As he was leaving the house, he was handed a message from Rectina, wife of Tassius, whose house was at the foot of the mountain, so that escape was impossible except by boat. She was terrified by the danger threatening her and implored him to rescue her from her fate. He changed his plans, and what he had begun in a spirit of inquiry he completed as a hero. He gave orders for the warships to be launched, and went on board himself with the intention of bringing help to many more people beside Rectina, for this lovely stretch of coast was thickly populated. He hurried to the place which everyone else was hastily leaving, steering his course straight for the danger zone. He was entirely fearless, describing each new movement and phase of the portent to be noted down exactly as he observed them. Ashes were already falling, hotter and thicker as the ships drew near, followed by bits of pumice and blackened stones, charred and cracked by the flames. Then suddenly they were in shallow water, and the shore was blocked by the debris from the mountain. For a moment my uncle wondered whether to turn back, but when the helmsman advised this he refused, telling him that fortune stood by the courageous, and that they must make for Pompeianus or Stabaye. He was cut off there by the breadth of the bay, for the shore gradually curves round a basin filled by the sea, so that he was not as yet in danger, though it was clear that this would come nearer as it spread. Pompeianus had therefore already put his belongings on board ship, intending to escape if the contrary wind fell. This wind, of course, full in my uncle's favor, was, of course, full in my uncle's favor, and he was able to bring his ship in. He embraced his terrified friend, cheered and encouraged him, and thinking he could calm his fears by showing his own composure, gave orders that he was to be carried to the bathroom. After his bath he lay down and dined, he was quite cheerful, or at any rate he pretended he was, which was no less courageous. Meanwhile, on Mount Vesuvius, broad sheets of fire 
and leaping flames blazed at several points, their bright glare emphasized by the darkness of night. My uncle tried to allay the fears of his companions by repeatedly declaring that these were nothing but bonfires left by the peasants in their terror, or else empty houses on fire in the districts they had abandoned. Then he went to rest and certainly slept, for as he was a stout man, his breathing was rather loud and heavy, and could be heard by people coming and going outside his door. You don't assume that in an account of Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii that you will hear about uh, a great historian of Rome and his habit of snoring, but there we have it. Uh, by this time, the courtyard, giving access to his room, was full of ashes mixed with pumice stones so that its level had risen, and if he had stayed in the room any longer, he would never have got out. He was wakened came out and joined Pompeianus and the rest of the household, who had sat up all night. They debated whether to stay indoors or take their chance in the open, for the buildings were now shaking with violent shocks, and seemed to be swaying to and fro, as if they were torn from their foundations. Outside, on the other hand, there was the danger of falling pumice stones, even though these were light and porous. However, after comparing the risks, they chose the latter. In my uncle's case, one reason outweighed the other, but for the others it was a choice of fears. As a protection against falling objects, they put pillows on their heads, tied down with cloths. Elsewhere there was daylight by this time, but they were still in darkness, blacker and denser than any ordinary night, which they relieved by lighting torches and various kinds of lamp. My uncle decided to go down to the shore and investigate on the spot the possibility of any escape by sea, but he found the waves still wild and dangerous. A sheet was spread on the ground for him to lie down, and he repeatedly asked for cold water to drink. Then the flames and smell of sulfur, which gave warning of the approaching fire, drove the others to take flight and roused him to stand up. He stood leaning on two slaves and then suddenly collapsed, I imagine because the dense fumes choked his breathing by blocking his windpipe, which was constitutionally weak and narrow and often inflamed. When daylight returned on the 26th, two days after the last day he had been seen, his body was found intact and uninjured, still fully clothed and looking more like sleep than death. So there we are. That is one account of, uh, I guess, the outer rim of what happened at Pompeii. I was I had forgotten how that ended and was wondering just where it was going. Now we flash forward to 1906 to uh, Jack London, and the note here says that uh, the story of an eyewitness was published in the May 5th, 1906 edition of Collier's. On the day of the earthquake, April 18th, 1906, Jack London, at one point the most highly paid writer in the United States, happened to be nearby in Glen Ellen. The earthquake and fire killed over 3,000 people 
and generated shock waves perceptible as far north as Coos Bay, Oregon, and as far south as Los Angeles. This is what Jack London has to say. On Wednesday morning, at a quarter past five, came the earthquake. A minute later, the flames were leaping upward. In a dozen different quarters south of Market Street, in the working-class ghetto and in the factories, fires started. There was no opposing the flames. There was no organization, no communication. All the cunning adjustments of a 20th century city had been smashed by the earthquake. The streets were humped into ridges and depressions and piled with the debris of fallen walls. The steel rails were twisted into perpendicular and horizontal angles. The telephone and telegraph systems were disrupted and the great water mains had burst. All the shrewd contrivances and safeguards of man had been thrown out of gear by 30 seconds twitching of the earth's crust. By Wednesday afternoon, instead of inside of 12 hours, half the heart of the city was gone. At that time, I watched the vast conflagration from out on the bay. It was dead calm. Not a flicker of wind stirred. Yet from every side, wind was pouring in upon the city, east, west, north, and south. Strong winds were blowing upon the doomed city. The heated air rising made an enormous suck. Thus did the fire of itself build its own colossal chimney through the atmosphere. Day and night, this dead calm continued, and yet, near to the flames, the wind was often half a gale, so mighty was the suck. Before the flames, throughout the night, fled tens of thousands of homeless ones. Some were wrapped in blankets, others carried bundles of bedding and dear household treasures. Sometimes a whole family was harnessed to a carriage or delivery wagon that was weighted down with their possessions. Baby buggies, toy wagons, and go-carts were used as trucks, while every other person was dragging a trunk. Over these trunks many a strong man broke his heart that night. The hills of San Francisco are steep, and up these hills, mile after mile, were the trunks dragged. Everywhere were trunks, with men across them, lying there with across them, lying their exhausted owners, men and women. Before the march of the flames were flung picket lines of soldiers, and a block at a time, as the flames advanced, these pickets retreated. One of their tasks was to keep the trunk pullers moving. The exhausted creatures, stirred on by the menace of bayonets, would arise and struggle up the steep pavements, pausing from weakness every five or ten feet. Often, after surmounting a heartbreaking hill, they would find another wall of flame advancing upon them at right angles and be compelled to change anew the line of their retreat. In the end, completely played out after toiling for a dozen hours like giants, thousands of them were compelled to abandon their trunks. Here the shopkeepers and soft members of the middle class were at a disadvantage, but the working men dug holes in vacant lots and backyards 
and buried their trunks. And you can just see the difference in the, uh, in the writing here. Uh, this is around the time, I think, that uh, Jack London uh, spent time in uh, London down and out um, trying to live in the East End. And he definitely has uh, sympathy for the poorer people here. Um, and the idea of burying their trunks reminds me of a story from the Great Fire of London when the diarist, John Pepys, is said to have, uh, as he saw the, the fires advancing, uh, buried a great deal of food, including cheese, in his backyard uh, to try and, uh, and probably, I think, wine too, uh, to try and keep it safe from the fire. Um, Although I don't think it worked because I think the story also says that uh, bodies uh, buried in the cemeteries of London six feet under uh, sort of boiled as the fire uh, came over them. Uh, it was that powerful. But um, they buried their trunks in San Francisco. On Thursday morning at a quarter past five, just 24 hours after the earthquake, I sat on the steps of a small residence on Knob Hill. With me sat Japanese, Italians, Chinese, and Negroes, a bit of the cosmopolitan flotsam of the wreck of the city. All about me were the palaces of the Nabob pioneers of 49. To the east and south at right angles were advancing two mighty walls of flame. It is still going. I went inside with the owner of the house and the steps which I sat. He was cool and cheerful and hospitable. Yesterday morning, he said, I was worth $600,000. This morning, this house is all I have left. It will go in 15 minutes. He pointed to a large cabinet and said, That is my wife's collection of china. This rug upon which we stand as a present cost 15 hundred dollars. Try that piano. Listen to its tone. There are few like it. There are no horses. The flames will be here in 15 minutes. I passed out of the house. Day was trying to dawn through the smoke pall. A sickly light was creeping over the face of things. Once only the sun broke through the smoke pall, blood red and showing quarter its usual size. The smoke pall itself, viewed from beneath, was a rose color that pulsed and fluttered with lavender shades. Then it turned to mauve and yellow and dun. There was no sun, and so dawned the second day on stricken San Francisco. An hour later I was creeping past that the shattered dome of the city hall, than it there was no better exhibit of the destructive force of the earthquake. Most of the stone had been shaken from the great dome, leaving standing the naked framework of steel. Market Street was piled high with the wreckage, wreckage, and across the wreckage lay the overthrown pillars of the city hall, shattered into short crosswise sections. This section of the city, with the exception of the mint and the post office, was already a waste <clears throat> excuse me, a waste of smoking ruins. Here and there, through the smoke, 
creeping warily under the shadows of tottering walls, emerged occasional men and women. It was like the meeting of the handful of survivors after the day of the end of the world. And for me, anyhow, and I'm sure for a few people out there hearing this, uh, seeing men and women emerging from the smoke and the shadows uh, calls to mind uh, the the footage of people on nine eleven wandering the streets covered in the in the ash and the debris and the dust of the towers, uh, wandering around in that daze or uh, in that daze or in tears or in anger or, or everything that it was. On Mission Street lay a dozen steers in a neat row, stretching across the street just as they had been struck down by the flying ruins of the earthquake. The fire had passed through afterward and roasted them. The human dead had been carried away before the fire came. At another place on Mission Street I saw a milk wagon. A steel telegraph pole had smashed down sheer through the driver's seat and crushed the front wheels, and the milk cans lay scattered around. All day Thursday, and all Thursday night, and all Friday, and all day Friday night, the flames still raged on. And that is Jack London. And this reminds me, I can add something else here. I can find it. Indeed. So if we fast forward now to, I think, 2004 or 2007, this is the American poet Lori Scheck, and this is her poem called Pompeii. I've always loved this. Um, and this probably gives the details uh, listeners were expecting from uh, Pliny the Younger in his account. This is the poem called Pompeii. Covered with lapilli, we crouched, preserved as we were on that first day, the last one of our lives. Our bodies black marginalia beneath the sky's unstable searchlight. They have unearthed the house of the fawn and the house of the silver wedding and the surgeon's house. Our bread still in our ovens, our tables spread and set. They have unearthed our lamp factories, our fulleries, the things we wrote on walls. They lift our rigidity up into sunlight we no longer see. Our eyes, night sky, and because we cannot speak, it seems to them we're holding many secrets. And that's worth reading again. This is Laurie Scheck's poem, Pompeii. Covered with lapilli, we crouch, preserved as we were, on that first day, the last one of our lives. Our bodies black marginalia beneath the sky's unstable searchlight. They have unearthed the house of the fawn, the house of the silver wedding, and the surgeon's house. Our bread still in our ovens, our tables spread and set. They have unearthed our lamp factories, our fulleries, 
the things we wrote on walls. They lift our rigidity up into sunlight we no longer see, our eyes night sky. And because we cannot speak, it seems to them we are holding many secrets. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.